Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, my name is Dr. Avine Banish. Welcome to another episode of The Wholehearted Healer. I'm really honored today to have Stephen Jenkinson on as a guest. Um, I read Stephen's book, um, Die Wise, uh, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. I've actually read it twice now. I've listened to it twice, and I recommend listening to it because um, I found it on Audible, and he just does such a beautiful job of sharing this manifesto. Um, but Stephen um, for five years, headed the counseling team of Canada's largest home-based palliative care team. Um, he is a storyteller, uh, cultural, uh, cultural activist, and author. Currently, um, he is working on this Nights of Grief and Mystery project that I really hope will come close to Colorado sometime soon. I keep checking. Um, and I just feel as if Stephen is a prophet for our time. Um, uh, really leading some amazing and important work. So I just want to say, Stephen, thank you. It's an honor for you to be here with me today. Thank you. That's, man, that's a lot to live up to. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so, you know, my um, my interest in your work, um, I'm a physician by training. Um, and I would say even back in my training days, there was a lot that didn't sit well with me in terms of uh, our modern medical system and I found myself um, hanging out with chaplains a lot more than I was probably supposed to, mm -hmm. but there was just this lack of, um, of truth or honesty, especially around the end of days for people. I mean, it was just not talked about somehow. And if, if it was, it was somehow a betrayal sometimes. And um, in your work, Die Wise, I think what really made me pause was the mantra that you kind of talk about. Um, that I think is so ingrown in, in Western medical care, that mantra, if you can, you probably should, referring to, you know, pulling out all the stops and just continuing, continuing um, as, you know, as disease progresses. And um, I just wondered if you could really start there. And I just think there's so much uh, truth and wisdom, and that's a hard thing to unravel. Um, from the inside of the system. It is. Well, you supplied probably in the aphorism. I, I never put probably in there. Okay. I think, I think it doesn't frankly belong. Uh, if you can, you should. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you will, of course, mm -hmm. but it certainly means you should. So there is a moral um, foreground to this notion, right? And there's a moral architecture and i'm i'm not persuaded of the morality of this moral code but a lot of people are as you know mm -hmm. so okay so why do people do this to themselves why is this considered for example why is this not at the top of the list of what constitutes malpractice in any generic sense of the term because it comes from somewhere that, that, that has nothing on, on surface of it, nothing to do with dying. It's, um, it's part of the manifesto of the culture that you are here to prevail, that you're here to succeed, that you're here to uh, extend the range of your mastery while you can. You're here to be independent and autonomous and, and far-reaching and consequential. And I could just go on and on with the self actualization stuff. But be not surprised, of course, then, that if you grow up in a culture where you're supposed to be all you can be, and then your dying time comes, and you're petulant, and you're belligerent, you're hostile, you have a sense of ongoing betrayal on the matter, and there's nothing in your life, in all your successes, in all your self-development, and so on, that predisposed you to the work of dying. What it did 
was forbade you. The, uh, the notion of submission. And there's nothing autonomous about dying, right? When you're dying, dying's the boss. That's what it means. That's what your time to die means. It doesn't mean you agree. It doesn't mean you think so. It doesn't mean you feel good about it. This is a dying-centered understanding, not a patient-centered understanding. And uh, I mean, it's just a train wreck when patient-centered care meets dying. It just is. Uh, that's what I saw over and over again. You've no doubt seen it yourself many times. So, <clears throat> excuse me, sadly, a, a culture made of very efficient, very belligerent refugees, as Anglo-North America clearly is, uh, has a predisposition to uh, supersizing all the possibilities. And so uh, dying is another problem to solve, not just for the medical community, but for the alleged clients of the medical community. And uh, I mean, they, nobody has to look far to find co-conspirators when it comes to making as if dying is another problem to solve. It's another challenge to your autonomy and your self-esteem. Another place for you to exercise your uh, sovereignty and so on. <clears throat> and is this not an aspect of, if you can, you should? I mean, when people hear it, they might picture a lot of chemotherapy when I say, if you can, you should. But I'm talking about everything that gets you out of here. I'm talking about everything from euthanasia or made, depending on where you are and, and how you refer to it. Um, <clears throat> I'm talking about the uh, unwillingness to, well, how many times when I was in the death trade, was the notion of speaking about dying dismissed out of hand as being in poor taste and premature. And the irony is the people in question are dying and they're in palliative care. My God, I mean, sometimes you don't know what to say. So it's, it's sad, but it's true. If you can, you should, is a moral code. And it's a, I think it's a, it's a doctrine, and even though it's been quite a while since I was active in the, as an employee in the death trade, everything I hear tells me these things are far and away uh, worse than they were when I was there. And, you know, part of what I love about um, your writing and your speaking and the um, Grief Walker, the the movie that the documentary that was made about your work is um, there's an honesty and a common sense and a groundedness that is um, my parents are from Ireland and so my grandparents died in the home they were waked in the home death was just more you know they grew they were on a farm death was more um, at hand really and you know now my I have four children. Um, Besides pets, they they wouldn't have seen anyone dying. If if when their grandmother died, she was in a pristine um, uh, funeral. You know, there's such a separation to it. So I think part of what resonates for me in your work is just that you're just trying to weave death into the fabric of life, which is, I mean, to to think that we can separate it is insane, <laughs> but that's what we're trying to do. It seems in in our dominant culture not trying trying suggested some kind of we'll see what happens no mm -hmm. we're in this we've seen what happens we are the what happens that's what the dominant culture of north america is it's, we're not waiting to see if this is on as you've just, just described it or what the, some of the outcomes might be we're here because of it you and i are talking now because these things are already on because this separation is deeply underway. It's not true that you can't separate. I know what you mean by the, the plea. You're saying that they ought not to be separated, they, that they're separated at our considerable peril, and which I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. But they can be separated, functionally speaking, until you know the last, choose your time frame, 48 hours or 
the last week or the last chemo round or, you know, then, then the, a lot of things are in collapse and everybody goes looking for the antidepressant uh, prescription, things of this kind. So the, the whole regime is not there to see to it that dying prevails. The whole thing is there to see to it that we stymie dying as much as is conceivable and then collapse in a heap thereafter. This is just madness. And do you think the the you know everywhere I look in society there's there's numbing, right? And there's always been numbing in the form of alcohol and um, but it, it feels acutely worse in our age, perhaps. Is that an effect of, you know, when you try to deny that something exists, it comes out in very strange ways. And so is it is it bleeding over into our living, the way that we are not dealing with our dying? Well, my take on it might not include this program of denial, as you've described it. And the reason I say that, I mean, it seems, seems kind of, doesn't go with everything I've just said, apparently. But I think it does. Here's why. If you're denying something, there's kind of an active engagement with what you're denying. You can't deny casually, particularly the kind of top drawer stuff of life, you know. Mm -hmm. If you're denying it, you're three quarters of the way to crediting it. That's just the mechanics of denial. I don't think dying has anything like that kind of prestige to warrant a kind of program of denial. I don't think it's there. I think there's a dismissal of, of dying. It, goes, it sounds like this. So in your country in particular is quite famous the world over for developing your own brand of Buddhism. Yeah, American Buddha, very strange characterization, but there it is with their own, your own language and so forth. And one of the things I hear from Amer North American Buddhists fairly routinely goes something like this. Oh, very dismissive, no? But in a, in a compassionate fashion. Oh, they say, we're all dying all the time. Pardon? Oh, yeah, it's just... It's nothing to get worked up about. It's we're all dying all the time. And are we really? What kind of a beam me up Scotty solution is we're all dying all the time? Listen, if we were all dying all the time, your training, your medical education doesn't make any sense. Because it's predicated on the advent of disease or or mishap or whatever it is, isn't it? So your expertise is put into motion as a consequence of certain things being so happening. Okay. You don't walk around saying everybody's in a car accident all the time. Right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's suicidal all the time. So where does this notion come from that we're all dying all the time and somehow that's good news. Somehow we're all off the meat hook. <laughs> Somehow this makes sense. In which case, a terminal diagnosis is just a joke. It's just uncalled for. It's, it's unbecoming. <clears throat> it was always there. But you and I both know that the advent of a ter terminal diagnosis can and must change everything. It reshuffles every conceivable deck of every conceivable game that you want to play. And I, by you, I certainly mean the patient, yes. And I mean the patient's family, that's very true. But I also mean everybody paid to attend to them. That your orientation to things should change as a consequence of that. And how can it possibly, if you've been dying your whole life, so I'll tell you a little uh, episode from my, my youth. 
where this is this was basically burnt on me. Never forget it. So I'm, uh, I think, four years old or, or less than four. And I have spinal meningitis. And uh, the, I mean, a lot of kids died in those days of spinal meningitis. And it was all but untreatable. And, and the miracle, the, the brave new drug was tetracycline, just to orient you to the thing. Okay, so this is 1958 or so. And I remember being hospitalized. I remember the lumbar puncture very, very acutely. Do I remember that? And I remember the nurses in particular who always shoulder the lion's share of the care, uh, attending to me in a certain fashion, a certain tone, as you know, kid, three and a half year old kids will tend to elicit that in caregivers, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I remember it changing like this. I don't say they became less anything. I say that what happened was clearly in a team meeting, somebody spoke the obvious. This kid's very unlikely to make it. And there was something about their attachment to me that I would just say cooled in some fashion, that it was not likely that they were going to pull me back across the line. And so they were readying themselves for another, uh, you know, child death on the ward. Mm -hmm. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. None of that would happen if we're all dying all the time. That's pretty amazing. Your your awareness and your uh, your emotional IQ to 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 have that memory and and, but it. I mean, it, that's how it is, right? Certainly, how it was. Yeah. So what is there to do? I mean, how can we shift? Your work is so beautiful in um, in talking honestly about um, about how it is in your manifesto. You you lay out ways to die wise, um, but like for me, raising children. I mean, how can I? How, as a parent, can we do this better? Ah, okay. Or do it at all. Yeah. Might be, might be a better phrase. Yeah. Well, this is going to be unsatisfying, but I think absolutely honest. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, though my kids are probably quite a bit older than yours, but... Uh, you know, we have a sense as parents that we are the last line of defense in our children's lives against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, right? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely not true, but we have that sense. Right. Uh, so <clears throat> we're the great restraining line, you know, we're Homeland Security and on and on and on. And the irony is that uh, we do so in, abs in the absence of a sustaining what I've come to call a village minded, sustaining village mindedness. It's not there. For most of us who look like me or likely you on this continent, it's not there. Okay, so you're the last line of defense for your kids by default, not by design. There's nobody else. And that poverty is rarely, if ever, spoken aloud. We just ongoingly try to solve the poverty problem by hyperextending ourselves, right? By assuming more and more responsibility, by more and more um, overseeing of their screen time, whatever it is. You know, there's a million strategies for trying to rescue kids from the world. In actual fact, you know what happens beyond a certain age? You are fairly inconsequential in the psychic life of your children. Maybe not inconsequential. I mean that you're not likely to be able to direct them psychically as you would intend. Does It doesn't prevent you from trying. But I'm suggesting that uh, you often put the emphasis on the wrong syllable to do so. So one of the corrective measures that all parents should be taking is to stop drinking the Kool-Aid that 
says you are the court of last resort in the psychic and emotional life of your children. And you be, you've got to begin to realize that the world eclipses you many times over in your kid's inner life, many times over. And so if you want to have some consequence that uh, mitigates some of the things you and I are talking about now, you can't operate at the level of your kids. You know, corrective surgery ongoingly performed upon your children. Eventually, they're going to give you a pass. I mean, that's the kindest way to say it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you work on behalf of a better day, not on behalf of a better kid. In a nutshell, that's what I'm saying. And to be slightly more elaborate, you can't have direct, the direct consequence that you intend. But indirectly, you can. You're basically disqualified uh, in the inner life of your child just by virtue of your proximity because you got skin in the game, you know, and your judgment is questionable more often than not and so on. Your reactivity and all of that. So if you actually take that to, to heart instead of resist it, then you begin to realize the other half is true too, which is you are a salient feature in the psychic life of everybody else's kids and incidental in the psychic life of your kids. And if you take that to heart, you begin to realize, oh, you're imminently qualified to be, if we can use this language, an elder in the life of other people's children. You are. I mean, as a, with a standing start, you are. Let's put it that way. So if you were to actually mobilize all your concern on behalf of doing something directly to improve your little corner of the world, what you got to hope for is that as a kind of indirect consequence, your children are bettered by that. But it's the world that needs your attention. And your kids can be the beneficiaries, though more often than not indirectly, see? And then the great news is this. They actually figure out that this is what you've done. And then their esteem for you goes through the roof in a very strange way. They thought you were kind of hands off. You were not that committed to them. You know, at some point they had decided that. And then later on, if everybody lives long enough, they catch a glimpse of what you were doing kind of on their behalf without them really paying attention. And there's a lot of grief in this realization. And the other half of the grief is the, the understanding that your parent had a different calculation than you, that you were not the center of every effort they made to have this corner of the world be a better place when they left than when they arrived. How you do that, it's not my responsibility to dictate over and over again how people should do it. The act of translation is the fundamental responsibility of grown-ups. But that's what you do. In a nutshell, you act on behalf of a better day in this world, hoping that your kids might indirectly benefit and be educated in a deep sense of the term by this kind of focus that you assume. I mean, I literally, <laughs> I'm not recommending this now, but I called my kids, I think they're around 17 or something like that. And I said, this is the precy of it. I said, look, every decision I've ever made for the last 15 or 18 years has had you at the center of it. Now, it's not your fault. Uh, and I, I, at the time, you know, I thought this was not a bad thing to do. And I still think it's not a bad thing to do, but those days are done. So you're just not the center of the universe. So um, it's good news for you. It may not sound like it, but I tell you, the heat's off now, right? So your world is bigger than my approval. And my focus is bigger than you thinking that I'm a good guy. And we've all lived long enough to be on, that, on the grown-up side of the, that moment. And um, I mean, I don't know what they think about the work that I do. Not really. But I think, um, you know, fairly, fairly regularly, they're, quote, recognized or their names recognized. 
So he says, are you related to, you know, and they, they do that math. And, and more often than not, they, uh, <laughs> it's a compliment. Their association with me is a compliment to them. And uh, so we, we're lucky that we've lived long enough to uh, enjoy some moderate merit to ins that ensues from that effort that I've tried to make, you know, but I'm still very deep in the proceedings of it. Now, look, there, there's a million other ways to answer the question that you've asked. Yeah. And some of them would be legitimate and some of them wouldn't be. But this as a kind of broad-based understanding of what's at stake and how you establish a footing from which to proceed, I think my answer is uh, will serve. I think it's an excellent answer. And it also, you know, in your work, um, a lot of the wisdom seems to be from uh, the long view, right? Be it time, be it not my life, but life in general. And so I think that um, that answer is a beautiful way to incorporate parenthood into this idea that um, that I'm a part of life. It's it's if I can get to the point where it's not my life, it's life, then then I'm on the way. I, I'm 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 understanding perhaps a bit more. I don't know if we should content ourselves with saying I'm on the way. I'm not sure that when you're doing the work you also get to know that you're doing the work. That you can sit there in the privacy of your own mind and say, wow, look at me doing the redemptive work. <laughs> I mean, you can say that, but uh, I'm not sure it comes with the territory, you know. So I, I think you have to choose. You either get recognized by the work that you're doing or you work. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, very often I've been kindly asked to sign people's books. Uh, I mean, that I've written, I should say. Yeah. And uh, very frequently I'll write something like, work, pray, repeat. That's, that's what it comes down to. Doesn't, doesn't mean, I don't think the list includes and every once in a while, just put your feet up and and just make a, a record of how amazing your strategies have been. I, right. I don't, maybe I should take more time and do that, frankly, but I don't. Uh, largely because the troubles of the times are so vehement and they're so relentless. And... <laughs> This is going to sound fairly dreadful, but Jesus, everything's getting worse. I mean, just about, you know, so this is a time, I don't know, you know, you know, familiar with uh, Hunter, Tom, Hunter S. Thompson. He, he lived not far from where you are, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So his line is, I'll probably mangle it slightly, but the gist of it was, he said, when the going gets tough, the pros turn weird. That's good. That's very, very good. I mean, he did that clearly. And uh, I think by weird, I'm saying that what you would expect from somebody who gets it may not be what you get from somebody who gets it. Getting it is not a reward system. Mm -hmm. Getting it amplifies your sense of responsibility for acting on behalf of a better day while you still can. Because because like you, my professional life has invested me with the understanding that baby, this is a time-limited proposition. There is absolutely nothing to wait for. There's no merit in prolonged hesitation. There's no merit in calculating your upside, wanting to get paid before you do the work, which is what, you know, when people ask me to corroborate their hopefulness, that's basically what they're asking me to do is pay them for work they haven't done yet. And the payday is getting to feel hopeful about what you haven't done so that you'll do it so that everything will work out. But everything's not working out. And the, the mania for hope and for positivity 
today is is so it's almost insurmountable, which is why I spent a good chunk of Daiwise inveighing against the calumny called hope, or as I call it, you know, the great holy trinity of palliative care: cope, hope, dope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, I find the the first uh, part of Daiwise to be some of the most inspiring writing I've ever read. So when you do frame death in that grand scheme, you know, that, that the earth is animate and she, or, you know, the earth will be here after I'm here. Um, And I, I just found it very, so there is a way to find awe and hope on a grander scale. Can you speak to that? <laughs> you can tell I'm probably not going to go along with you on on there's a way of finding hope at a grander scale. Not not for me personally. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not disqualifying hope out of hand. I'm just saying not interested. And here's why. It's not like I haven't tried it. You know, it's not like I didn't see what being hopeful did to dying people. I did. It's one of the things I wrote about, you know, to the extent that I was able to try to give people who've never been there, <coughs> excuse me, a sense of what that does to dying people, about how, how it mortgages being in the present so vehemently that basically they're a future-oriented person now. How are you supposed to die? If you've got all your horses running the future race, mm-hmm. how are you supposed to die? How are you supposed to inhabit the dying and the and the weeks or months that remain to you? So I don't find hope obliges people to take up residence in the present moment. I just don't. I've looked and looked and looked. I'm not recommending hopelessness. I mean, try it. Don't take my word for it. Try hope. Try hopeless. You'll be staggered to realize, my God, they are so close in consequence that they're almost indistinguishable. So so what, what do I do instead? My answer is hope-free. That's the term I came up with. It's not somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do with hope. It's just I see hope. I proceed over there. People ask me to be hopeful. I say, you can get that anywhere. You don't have to get it from me too. You might think you do, but you don't. Not only that, but I have no obligation to corroborate your hope, Jones. I really don't. You know, if I never said I got a better idea than anybody else. But I will go as far as to say... I think I've thought about things that are uncommon. I was lucky enough to see these things in the flesh while I was working the death trade. So I didn't have to make anything up. I didn't have to have hypotheses and feelings and and opinions and attitudes about things. All I really had to do was go to work every day and keep my eyes open, which is not easy to do when you're swarmed by the team mania. And the we're all in this together thing, and and the the as I call it in the book, the customer satisfaction trade. And you don't want you don't want to get a black mark in your book, right? You don't want anybody to be reporting you or writing you out, or you know, you want to be seen to be in their corner. But it, being in the corner of dying people in a death phobic culture makes you a malpractitioner. It's just what it does, because you got to reasonably assume that if the culture is death phobia and dying's in the house, death phobia will be there. You got to reasonably expect that if you've got a, a healthcare facility and there's a palliative care unit in the facility, then the death phobia of the culture will be there. It's not like because there's a, something called health center at the end of the name that it's banished death phobia and everybody's got it straight. 
And, you know, you had your training, you saw, you saw how death friendly the medical training available to you was, how death literate it was. I was on the adjunct faculty of the, one of the uh, schools of medicine in, in, in Canada. And same thing, same thing. I, I'll never forget this. I asked one time, room full of physicians. I said, of all the organs in your body, <laughs> anatomical or, or symbolic, you know, you, as you see fit, point to the one that you use every day without fail on the job. Of course, most people won't even do this with you. But and eventually, they did some, a lot of people to their hands, as you'd expect. And then a lot of people were saying, well, what about the psychic part, you know, the, the compassion thing? And uh, well, I said, point to where your compassion lives. You know, don't be, don't be stymied by that. Here's what nobody pointed to. Nobody. Nobody ever. Pointing to your tongue. Yes. Nobody ever indicated that what they said was the first and most enduring point of contact between them and the patients they claim to try and be take trying to be taking care of. That's just unbelievable to me. It's really unbelievable that there was so little attention given to the one organ in the body that functions every day without fail and tries to make known to you know the best part of them as a practitioner to the people who are suffering and all the rest. No attention to the language. So that's why I wrote the book that I wrote. My, my effort there was to redeem the language, not by inventing a language, but by anointing a certain kind of speaking where the realities of dying actually appeared instead of were mollified or became hazy or vague. And in a classic example of double speak in the trade is this. So I think it was a social worker comes into the room and I'm there and a heavily chemoed woman is in the bed. And she's, and the social worker is very up. You probably have seen the type I'm talking about. Very up. No, it's like nobody needs that when they're dying, but you'd never know it up is the first order of business. So somewhere in the first minute, the woman actually says to the dying person, so just so we're clear now, you're not dying of cancer. You are living with cancer. Wow. How are you supposed to keep your bearings as a dying person? We're not, you're not allowed to be a dying person mm -hmm. because a jaunty social worker isn't having it from you because they're trying to make you feel better. Yeah. And it, it negates the experience you're actually living. Oh, for starters, apparently the, at the end of the conversation, you're supposed to feel better. How do you feel better about dying in a culture that doesn't believe in any endings of any kind? How are you supposed to feel better? Well, you know, the answer is you feel less. That's how you feel better. So my program was, you're not going to feel better. But as a consequence of me being around, you'll probably feel more. And this gives you choices that didn't seem available to you before. But one of the, one of the real choices is what's really happening. And you can choose to ignore it, but I wouldn't advise it. And as long as I'm here, we won't be ignoring it. So if death needs a spokesperson, if death needs a voice in a death phobic culture, I volunteered myself for the job. Would it be that more people would volunteer themselves for that job? <laughs> well, you know, the other half of it is Bob Dylan's great line. He said, and I'll know my song well before I start singing. So there's that too. I mean, you just can't say, I'll do it. The other half is, 
you better have something going on. You better have done your work. You see, you've got to do your work. You've got to hear the poverty of the language. You've got to realize that what people think is compassionate is obfuscating instead. You know the, I mean, I don't know anybody working in the trade who actually knew the etymology of the word palliative. I had to tell them over and over again. And every time I did, you could see them just glaze over like, oh man, enough already with the Latin and like, who cares? Okay, but I'm not the word who invented palliative to describe this enterprise. Why did you use it? Why did you choose? Why do you continue to use it? Why is it on your business card that you leave with a dying person when you visit them at home? Well, do you know what it means? It doesn't mean compassionate care. It doesn't mean anything of the kind. The word palliative comes from the P-A-L-L root. And we use the word, do we not? A Paul fell over the room every time Jenkinson said anything, for example. So what, what does that mean? A kind of grim <laughs> blanket of uh, muffled kind of presence or something. No, P-A-L-L means to cloak or to conceal. That's where the word comes from. And of all the words to characterize the care of dying people, palliative, it's astounding how confessional it really is. To cloak or to conceal. That's how you translate compassion in a place that doesn't believe in endings or frailties or limits. Mm. I can still get excited about this stuff all these years later. Where does soul come in? Well, I mean, it's manifest in everything I've been saying to you since we started. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, it's good to be a little particular about the word. You know, uh, Anglo-North Americans are not good at inner geography. As soon as we go inner, it's one size fits all. There's one word for it. You know, choose your word, whatever word you like. But you know, we can't distinguish soul from spirit, from psyche, from mind, from self, from, you know, we, we, it's like they just melt together. There's no distinction to speak of. We don't, we don't know where one is, where one gives way, the other one is. Are they all the same thing? It's like a hundred words for God, you know, same kind of mess. So uh, soulfulness is a, is a I, I don't know, I don't understand it as, a, as an organ of the self, I understand it as a, as a quality of undertaking, a quality of uh, proceeding, yeah? It's a willingness to be, to abide by the deal called, you don't get a long time. You get to know that you're going to die, but you don't get to know when recognize the compassion that's in that arrangement because you'd go nuts if you actually knew when. Mm -hmm. So you don't know when. So that's good. But you know that. You know that much. You don't need to know anymore, do you? Do you think more information is going to kind of get you hip to the whole thing? I doubt it very much. You've got all the information you need to be responsive to the facts, right? That's as soulful as anything else is that I can think of. Of course, of course, it's good to be wowed by a sunset like the one behind you in that picture there. It's good. It, it is. It's great to be wowed by mountains and the whole and 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 people being kind to each other unexpectedly. And it's great. But um, to my mind, soulfulness is the quality of being deeply engaged by the ordinary, not the spectacle, by the, by the everyday. That's where the miracles are to be found. So, you know, you've heard the language of miracles in your work. I'm sure you have over and over again. I certainly did. 
we have a I have a show I do called Nights of Grief and Mystery, and and there's a story in there called Miracles. And you know, the pricey of it is. So here's a guy, and he's cachectic there in the couch and in, in, in his death room, and his wife sitting behind him, and uh, nobody's saying it. And I've met them. This is the first time I met them. And I, I say to him, is there anything that you're not sure about? Is there anything that you'd like to ask that nobody's thought to mention to you? Or almost as an afterthought, in this tone of voice, I can still hear him say it. He said to me, am I dying like that? He's, he's in palliative care. I'm sitting in his house. That's all the sign you need. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's what he said. And he genuinely was perplexed on the matter. And I could see that he wanted an answer. And I could see that she wanted me to answer in any way but the honest one. Because they're both looking at me, but neither one of them can see each other. But I can see them both. And I have to decide to whom do I owe what? Where's my allegiance? Right? Because I can't satisfy them both right now. It's not going to happen. So you know who I chose? I chose him. Yes. And I said, yes, you are. And this is what it's like. And you're deeply into it now. And so there's nothing to wait for. You'll not be more truly dying than you are now. And she went bananas. Yelling at me, I had no right. And so just as you'd expect, no. And at the end of her tirade, she said, you could be wrong. You guys are wrong all the time. Anyway, she said, isn't there such a thing as miracles? And that's her trump card, you see. And she's daring me to say there's no such thing as miracles. Or there's no such thing as miracles in chemo land or whatever it is. <laughs> and me being wrong is the same thing as miracles. So I basically, in response, said to her, you know, your understanding of miracles is something precious to you is rescued from the grind. And then the grind is reconstituted minus what's precious to you. And that's what most of us think a miracle is. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's a rupture in the natural order of things. But what if the natural order of things is the thing miraculous? Because that's what I'm contending. And when you violate the natural order of things, you violate the capacity for the miraculous to be manifest among us. And you've turned it into a question of your will, your living will, right? Your power of attorney, (laughs) your enough already thing, your made program, your euthanasia legalization, your hallucinogen reconstitution, and on and on. So in answer to your question, which is obviously taking a long time, I think soul is a willingness to be on the receiving end of grace. Once you understand that grace doesn't mean you get your way. Doesn't mean you're the boss. It means for once, blessedly, you're not the boss. So... Take the back seat. Understand that dying is bigger than you. It's not another lifestyle option for you to exercise. And it doesn't belong to you. It's entrusted to you. And you're supposed to take care of it. And your dying is supposed to be in better shape at the end of your life than it was when your life started. You can't possibly do that if you don't have time in between now And when the terminal diagnosis comes, there's such a thing amongst grownups as too late. There is. Take it from me or wait. Those might be your choices. I think that's soulful. I think so too. And uh, (laughs) so much in that response. I love it when I meet with with someone and they 
the experience changes me. And I feel that that has happened today. I want to say thank you, Stephen, for your time. Thank you for your work in the world. Um, I, I really think that word profit for me, it, it, it encompasses something about you. Um, and I'm just grateful for, for getting to sit down with you today. And I really hope that I will get to catch that Knights of Grief and Mystery Project. Um, I know you're touring around the world, so I'll link that in show notes. Maybe someone can find you um, that is meant to find you. And you have a lot, you have a beautiful presence too on, online so people can read your books and, and watch watch things to, to learn more about your work and to figure out how, you know, as I love that that responsibility as an adult, that it's that it's up to us to translate our work into the world in a way that um, lifts, you know, makes it better for, for everyone. I, I loved your, your response about parenting. I, that was really, really wise. And mm-hmm. I, you know, the mother of three teenagers and a young adult. So you couldn't have hit it more on the head in terms of, um, in terms of that response for me. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And thank you for the kindnesses. You know, you might imagine I sit here all day and the kindnesses just roll in, you know, but if, of course, you know, that's not true. That's not what happens. You know, that the things I'm talking about and the way I talk about them are exceedingly, um, don't seem to go along with the normal expectations. It's, you know, that's not a plan on my part, but it tends to be what goes on. You know, I, I do my best to see things as they are. And that's what I talk about. I don't talk about things as they should be. I'm not exactly sure how things should be. I have a vague idea of how things could be, but my principal responsibility is to how things are. And, you know, an opportunity like today is another opportunity to pay down my responsibility in that matter. And I can't disagree with you on the profit thing. I used to say, no, 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 no. But (laughs) it's got to a point now where I'm kind of persuaded on the matter. So thank you for the recognition and thank you for your time and, and for the work that you've done as well. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Stephen. Welcome.